Let's take our Bibles and we're going to turn to the book of Philippians this morning, Philippians chapter number two. I want to say thank you to those who uh, are filling in some, some gaps this morning for folks who are out. Thank you for being willing to uh, step up and help out. We've had um, a few different piano players helping in, in uh, that regard today and uh, some in the Sunday school hour and things of that nature. We're thankful for that. Appreciate all of you very much. Um, and it's a blessing. It's a blessing to be part of a church where um, the Lord has people who love Him and want to serve Him and be used uh, of Him in different ways. And so I'm thank thankful for that, thankful for each of you. Well, we've been in the book of Philippians now for several weeks on Sunday mornings, and uh, we are here in chapter 2 this morning. I'm going to let you remain seated uh, as we read this. You were just standing not too long ago. And uh, we don't have special music this morning outside of the choir, so I get a few extra minutes to preach anyway. But no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Uh, I get as long as I want. No. Uh, you laugh. What are you laughing about? Um, Philippians 2. We've been, last week we were looking at, the, at Christ and his sacrifice for us and the fact that he condescended, he became man. And, and, and took upon him the form of a servant, and that he, as our example, uh, humbled himself and was obedient to the will of his father. And we looked ultimately at the, uh, at the conclusion of that, that God hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. And we talked even about the judgment that will come, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of of God the Father. We're going to pick it up today in verse number 12. We're going to read verses 12 through 16. And we'll, we'll go ahead and just begin reading here. So Philippians chapter 2 verse 12. Paul speaking to the Philippian church says, Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation. With fear and trembling, for it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Do all things without murmurings and disputings, that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. The Kind of the emphasis this morning, everything stems off of verse number 12, the end of the verse. I want you to notice these words. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And I want to preach to you this morning a message entitled, Salvation That Works. Salvation That Works. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this powerful passage of Scripture. Lord, we know that your word will not return unto you void, but it will prosper in the thing whereto you send it. I pray, Lord, that today you would send forth your word, that you would use me as your vessel and speak through me uh, to give your message to your people today. Uh, help us, Father, to understand the truth of your word, but not only to intellectually grasp the concepts, but help us, Lord, to apply these things in our lives Challenge us, convict us, change us, Lord, we pray, and do your will in our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That passage of Scripture, that statement in Scripture, could obviously be easily misunderstood and misconstrued to somehow imply that salvation is something that we work for or something that we do to earn it. Now, it's important to, as we study the Word of God, to understand everything in the Bible makes sense within its proper context. When you start pulling things out of context and you start bringing in just a single verse of Scripture and not comparing it to the rest of the passage around it, you can start getting pretty confused. Maybe you've heard someone teaching something that's clearly not scriptural, but they're using Bible verses to teach it, and it's, it's usually because of that. They're either twisting the meaning of that verse or they're trying to tell you that this verse somehow stands on its own. But just like your conversation and my conversation, the, the, the Bible is also the same way. Context matters. And, and we have to remember that this book of Scripture was written to a group of believers. This is a group of saved people who are, are part of a, a New Testament church. And throughout this book, as we've been studying it, uh, Paul has been even at, uh, encouraging them and commending them for the, the, the things that God has done in their life and is doing through them. And so he is not telling them or encouraging them to work out their salvation in this, this sense that somehow they better work hard to make sure that they're doing good enough so that when they die that they will be saved, that they will go to heaven. That's not the context of this. And I want to just reiterate a couple of things for you. First of all, let us remember that Ephesians chapter 2 and verses 8 and 9 clearly tell us that salvation is by grace through faith, right? For by grace are ye saved through faith. And that, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. What does that mean? It means no one will be able to stand in heaven in the presence of God and say, I got here because I was a good person. Most people, if you ask them, when you die, will you go to heaven or hell? They'll say, well, I hope that I will go to heaven because I'm trying real hard. I, I'm a good person. I, I, I try to do good things. And what are they trusting in? They're trusting in their own works. Well, think about it, friend. If it is our goodness that would get us to heaven, we would have cause to boast, would we not? We could look at ourselves and say, well, we are worthy. We are good. God has received me because I was good enough for him. But the Bible says that salvation is by grace. Grace means a gift that is given that is not deserved. It is by grace and it is through faith. We receive God's grace through faith. We believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and we are saved. And our salvation is not of works lest any man should boast. And another place I want to show you, if you'd hold your place here in Philippians, but go back to the book of Romans, chapter number 11. Romans chapter 11, the Bible speaks of grace here, and clearly teaches us that grace and works do not fit together. Some people think, well, yes, it is salvation is by the grace of God, so we have to receive the Lord Jesus Christ is our Savior, and then we have to do the very best that we can. In fact, I, I was just reading something this morning by someone uh, who was saying that 
You know, we, we uh, receive Christ's righteousness by faith. It's called imputation. God imputes or places upon us the righteousness of Christ at, at, at salvation. And they'll say, yes, we, we receive His righteousness at salvation, but then we have to continue in righteousness in order that we might be saved. But friend, I want to show you something. Romans chapter 11, verse number 5. Look what it says. Even so then, at this present time, also there is a remnant according to the election of grace. Verse 6. And if by grace, then it is no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be of works then it is no more grace, otherwise work is no more work. Now you might say, what in the world does that mean? Here's what it means. Salvation is either by grace or by works. It cannot be both. And since we clearly know that it is not of works, it is only by grace, you cannot mix these two. You can't say, I'm saved by the grace of God and the good things I do. Because if that were the case, then it's not really grace. Grace is not grace if it is earned. A gift is not a gift if it is not given. Think about it, friend. If you went, and, and for today is my, my son's, my youngest son's second birthday. Philip turned two today. And uh, he's pretty excited about that. And if I were to go out and get Philip a gift for his birthday... And he looked at me, and he couldn't even express this, but if, if I gave it to him, he said, thanks, Dad, I'll pay you back. Now, the truth is, he could never pay me back, because anything he has is given to, me, uh, given to him by me anyway. Think about that. Everything you have is given to you by God. But... If he did try to pay me back, if one of my older boys, if I gave him a Christmas gift and they said, here, Dad, here's a $100 bill. Thanks for your gift. Well, that's no longer a gift. If I take that, it's not a gift. It's not a gift if it's not freely given. And what God is saying here is that grace is not grace if works are attached to it. If your salvation is somehow dependent upon you and anything you do, then it is not the grace of God. It is your works. Either work is not work or grace is not grace. But if it is by grace, then it cannot be by works. And friend, I want you to know this. Salvation is by grace and grace alone. There is nothing you will ever do to earn your way to God. You cannot do it. No matter how good you think you are, your works will not obtain favor with God. Salvation is by grace, and you must receive it as a gift, believing on the Lord Jesus Christ and trusting that what He did on the cross is sufficient for you. So it's clear, you cannot be saved by yourself. Salvation is not by works, but... Genuine salvation is always accompanied by works. You say, well, what does that mean? If you are saved, there will be evidence of that salvation. I had, uh, go with me to James chapter 2, if you would, James chapter 2. Over the last year and a half, uh, I have fought with a riding lawnmower. 
It has been the very bane of my existence. Every time, I think with one, maybe two exceptions, every time I tried to use this lawnmower, I had to fix something. Now, sometimes that was somewhat of a major repair, at least for my skill set. And sometimes it was something very minor. A couple different times it was a fuse that had blown. Don't ask me how long it took me to find that fuse. Sometimes it was minor, sometimes it was major, but every time this thing was breaking down and it was just, I'm so thankful God allowed me to get rid of that thing and I've got a different mower that's been good so far. Praise the Lord for that. But in that time of working on this lawnmower, there were times that I thought I had diagnosed the problem. And when I went to fix that problem and I replaced the part that I thought was the problem, it didn't fix the problem. Has anybody ever been there before? He tried to fix something. You thought you knew what was going on, but it didn't work. So let's just say that I went and, and I, I, I went out one morning and tried to start the lawnmower as I did so many times, tried to start it, and nothing happened. And through a series of uh, of processes, troubleshooting, I determined that it was the battery, the battery was dead. I go to put a charge on the battery and it won't take a charge. So my conclusion is the battery is bad, right? No solution, no fix to that other than to get a new battery. So I go down to the parts store and I exchange the old battery, buy a new one, and I bring it back to the house, and I install the new battery in that lawnmower. And I look over it, and I declare the problem fixed. Problem solved. Except, when I go to put the key in and turn it again, nothing happens. Now, if I go into the house frustrated, because that's never happened before, and I walk into the house, and I say to, to my wife, I don't know what's wrong. I fixed it. And it still doesn't work. Depending on my wife's mood, she might say, well, apparently you didn't fix it. Why? Because if it was fixed, it would what? It would work. The fact that it was working would be evidence that it had been fixed. Now, folks, here's the thing. When it comes to salvation, a lot of times people have this idea and this thought in their mind. I realized that I was a sinner. And I prayed this prayer or I did this thing. Therefore, I am saved. I am fixed. But folks, the, the reality is as we study the Bible, salvation is completely by grace through faith. It's not dependent on our works. But true salvation works. So let's read in James chapter 2, look at verse number 17. It says this, Even so faith, if it have not works, if it hath not works, is dead being alone. 
Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. So I could take that lawnmower that was demon-possessed, and I could take this thing, and I could say to my wife, No, come here, look at this. I fixed it. Look. I took the old battery out. I put a new battery in. I fixed it. And what would she say? I don't know what she'd say. It depends on my mood, probably, <laughs> what she would say. But she could say, listen, I don't really care what you did. If it was fixed, you'd be out mowing. <laughs> so you can try and show me your fix and show me all the things you did, but if there's nothing happening there, it's not fixed. And then you might look at someone else and say, well, the neighbor's out in the yard mowing. I don't know what he did to his, but it's fixed. Because it works. And this is what James is saying. Listen, it's not that our works save us or make us right with God. Not at all. It is holy by grace. But understand this, friend. If you have received the grace of God, if you have been saved, there will be evidence of that in your life. It will work its way out. And to say that you have faith with no evidence of that faith tells me that you don't really have saving faith. Because salvation works. Salvation is evident. Show me thy faith without thy works. I will show thee my faith by my works. So this passage of Scripture is not teaching in any way that we are to work for our salvation. Rather, it is teaching that those who are saved ought to allow their salvation to work its way out of them. Have you ever heard the saying, what's on the inside will come out? What is going on in the heart of an individual? And Jesus talked about that. It's, it's that which flows from the heart that comes out of the mouth and out of the actions. It's, it's what's going on inside that comes out. So we could say it th this way, this admonition to work out your own salvation. Uh, we could say it this way, let your salvation become outwardly evident. Let that which is real in you become evident to those around you. Philippians chapter 2, where we started this morning, says this in verse number 12, Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not, in my, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So what's he saying? You have obeyed. They've been obedient. This was evidence to Paul that these people were saved. They were obedient to who? Well, to the Word of God. And to him as their spiritual leader. They, they did what God would have them to do. And notice he says, not as in my presence only. It wasn't just when I was there with you, keeping an eye on you, but even now that I'm gone, now that I'm not present with you, even more, your faith has flourished and you're continuing to obey the Lord. 
How many of us would admit that the test of our children's obedience to us isn't when we're standing right next to them. It's what they do when we're not there. It's when we say maybe to a young child, hey, don't get into the cookie jar and we can leave the room and know that they're going to do what they were told even when our presence is not there. And here's what Paul is saying. Listen, you obeyed in my presence. When I was there with you, you were, it, it was evident that you were catching on, that you were doing what God would have you to do. But now, now that I am not in your presence, now that I'm in prison, the fact that you continue to follow the Lord is evidence to me that it's not me. It is the Holy Spirit of God within you that is encouraging you and keeping you where you ought to be and doing what is right. Why? Well, because obedience to the Lord is evidence of our salvation. 1 John chapter 5, verses 2 and 3 says, By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep His commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments and His commandments are not grievous. This is, this is evidence that we, there's a love of God in our hearts. Not when we have to obey God, but when we obey God because we want to. Friend, do you know that anything good in me is not me. And anytime I do what I ought to do, it's not because I am a good person. It's not because I have achieved some level of discipline. It's because God is working in me. Paul even said, the Apostle Paul, I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. Nothing good comes of me. And that's what he says in verse number 13. Look at this. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. It, it's not me. It's not your own commitment that makes you do what God wants you to do. It is the Spirit of God within you that works in you both to will, to even have the desire to do right, and to do of His good pleasure. Any good that comes of me is a result of the Spirit of God working in me. This is a confidence. If you remember in chapter 1 and verse number 6, He told them, he said, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it unto the day of Jesus Christ. What was he confident of? Well, understand this. When a person comes to Christ in salvation, that is a work of God. You didn't save yourself. I didn't save myself. God in his mercy reached down and saved us. That was a work of God. And in the same way that we needed God to save us, we need God to sanctify us. We need God's work in us to grow us. And, and, and it's God which worketh in us both to will and to do of His good pleasure. We, we need the Lord. Listen, friend, I don't know uh, where you are at in this process, but I'm telling you that the longer I am saved, the more aware I become of how desperately I need God to work in my life. How much I need Him. You know, it would be easy to look at myself and say, well, I've been saved now for 
almost 30 years. And, and I've been in church that whole time, and I've been in full-time ministry for the last 15 years, and I've been a pastor for the last 12 years. And it'd be easy for me to look at myself and say, well, you know, I've, I've kind of got this thing figured out. But friend, let me tell you something. I don't. I need God today as much as I ever did. And, and, and that's, not just a, that's not just a saying. That's not just a cliche. It is absolutely real and evident in my life. I need God. And so do you. Because it's God that works in us both to will and to do of His good pleasure. And so what's he saying? You need to let God work through you. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Let me say this quickly. We ought to allow the salvation that God has given us to work its way out of us, number one, because there is a coming judgment. We let God work in us and through us because there is a coming judgment. Notice in verse number 12, the verse begins with the words, Wherefore? Wherefore, my beloved? And at the end of the verse, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Why? What, is the, what is the context of working out our salvation with fear and trembling? The previous two verses say this, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The context is this, one day you will stand in judgment before God. You will stand in judgment before God. Now you say, well, if I'm saved, I'm not judged by God. The Bible actually speaks of two different judgments. One judgment is for those who are lost without Christ. It happens in front of what the Bible calls the great white throne, where Jesus sits, and we will be judged according to one thing, whether or not our name is written in the book of life. And the Bible says in Revelation that whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Friend, you better make sure your name's in that book. You better make sure your name's in that book. That's the judgment. Are you in the book of life or not? Have you received Jesus Christ? The Bible says he that hath the Son hath life. And he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. If you have not believed on the name of the only begotten Son of God, the wrath of God abides on you. Your, your name needs to be in the book. But, there's another judgment the Bible speaks of, and while you and I may be able to say, well, I'm thankful I don't have to fear the great white throne judgment because my name's in the book. I know I'm saved. I know I've been forgiven. I know that my name is written there. So I don't have to fear eternal judgment that I would die and go to hell or to the lake of fire. Praise the Lord for that. But there is another judgment, and one that's for you and me if you're saved. This is called the judgment seat of Christ. 
And this is the judgment whereby we will not be judged whether we will go to heaven or hell, but this is a judgment of reward where we will be rewarded for our works. And those who are saved will stand in judgment before Christ and give account of every word, every thought, and every action of our lives. Friend, if that is not a sobering thought to you, it ought to be. One day, you'll answer to God. Now, I'm thankful that I get to answer to Him as His child. But I still have to answer. And so do you. And this is why, even though we're saved, we know that we're saved, there's a degree of fear and trembling. As I'm honest with myself and I look at my life, friend, I want you to know, I've wasted a lot of time. I've wasted a lot of opportunities. I've been involved in a lot of things that have not pleased the Lord. And I know that I'll give account one day. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of God. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 10 through 11, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that every one may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. That's the judgment for believers, not heaven or hell, a judgment about rewards. But I want you to notice what Paul says in verse number 11, Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Even for us. There ought to be a degree of fear. Not fear for, Listen, I'm not afraid to die. If, if God called my number today, I, I'm, I'm thankful. I know, I know I'd be in the presence of the Lord by His grace. Oh, man, I'm looking forward to that day. I'm not afraid to die. But knowing that one day I'll give account to God, it's a sobering thought. It's a sobering thought. We ought to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling because there's coming judgment. Secondly, because the world around us needs a witness for the truth. Look what he says in verse number 14. He says, Do all things without murmurings and disputings that ye may be blameless and harmless. The sons of God without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world. What's he saying? Listen, friends, there ought to be, as we've talked about in the last few weeks, there ought to be something different about you. The world should be able to look at you and see something different. The world should be able to look at the church and see there's something different about those folks. We are to be a light in this dark world that we live in. By the way, I want you to notice what he calls it, a crooked and perverse nation. Make no mistake, this is the reality of the world that we live in. It is crooked and it is perverse. And friend, we, we might, as human beings, try to minimize it and even try to downplay it and even celebrate Things that are not pleasing to the Lord, but I want you to notice this. God says it's crooked and it's perverse. And anything that is a departure from the very words of God, 
a departure from the law of God is crooked and perverse. We live in a world that is more and more turning its back on the truth of God's word and trying to establish our own standard of morality and right and wrong. And friend, I just want you to know it's not okay. It's crooked and perverse. But in the midst of this crooked and perverse world, there is to be a distinction. There's to be a contrast. Something different about God's people than the world. How often do we find ourselves just kind of simply blending into the world and going along to get along because we don't want to ruffle feathers or rock the boat. We don't want to cause problems. We don't want any resistance or opposition in life. So we keep our mouths shut. We, 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 we're afraid to speak up. We're afraid to stand out. You know what happens pretty soon? The light begins to be absorbed into the darkness. That's what happened with Lot, by the way. You know the Bible calls Lot a righteous man? He was a righteous man, Abraham's nephew, that he started off pitching his tent towards Sodom and Gomorrah. He pitched his tent there. Pretty soon we see him in the city. Pretty soon we see him sitting at the gate of the city with the leaders of the city. And when it came time for God to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah for their wickedness, even Lot's own family wouldn't leave with him. Think about that. What a mess he had made in his life, even though he was a righteous man. And here's what the Bible says about it in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, that God delivered just Lot, just Lot, vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them in seeing and hearing vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. You know what happened? Lot didn't rub off on Sodom. Sodom rubbed off on Lot. And the world around him began to influence him. And the Bible says that it vexed his soul. The word vex, it has to do with oppression. It has to do with affliction. There was a conflict, an inner conflict in Lot's heart between that which was true of him, that he was a righteous man, and that which was constantly influencing and affecting him, and, and he was conflicted. Sodom and Gomorrah vexed Lot's righteous soul. Why? Because he was seeing and hearing their unlawful deeds. You know what happens when we see and hear sin? At first, we're repulsed by it. Then we become accustomed to it. Then we become comfortable with it. Pretty soon we find ourselves accepting it and sometimes even indulging in it. Let me tell you something. The things that are going on in the world around us today, 20 or 30 years ago, would have repulsed us. But we've become so accustomed to these things just day in and day out. Day in and day out. We see it and we hear it. We see it and we hear it. And it desensitizes us. And pretty soon we become very callous. We just kind of fade into the darkness. By the way, that's why you need to feed and fill yourself with this book constantly. Feed yourself the Word of God. 
You need to replace the junk that the world tries to put into your mind and your heart about what is true and what is right and what is just and what is good. And you need to feed it with the Word of God. What does God say? What does our Creator say about this? We need to fill ourselves with the Word of God. Because the world needs... Listen, we are commanded to be salt and light. We're to be different. We're to be distinct. We're to be set apart. Come out from among them and be separate, saith the Lord. And touch not the unclean. And God said, be holy, for I am holy. And yet so often we just kind of let it go. Just let it go. Pretty soon our lives look no different than the world around us. And while we may be righteous, that salvation that's in us is not really working out of us as it ought to. The world needs a light, friends. And understand this, that God's people, the the, the ones that God has sent to be a light to the world, have never really been accepted by the world. The prophets were not the most popular people in the world. They weren't the most well-liked. The apostles, all but one of them died a martyr's death. The one that didn't die a martyr's death died in exile because of his faith. Our forefathers, those who were willing to stand up to false doctrine and false teaching, the false doctrines of Rome, those who were willing to stand up for for truth, for the word of God. You know the Bible that you hold in your hands is stained with blood. They weren't well liked, but remember Jesus wasn't very well liked either. He said, if the world hated me, you know it'll hate you. We're not called to be popular. We're not called to fit in. We're not called or commanded to be well-liked. Well, we just need to... We need to be accepting of everyone because they won't listen to us. Listen, friends. Our responsibility... Listen, I'm not saying that we need to be rude and abrasive and unkind. Jesus was loving and compassionate and merciful and... But understand this, our goal is not to help people listen. Our goal is to proclaim truth and let God work in people's lives. It's God that works in us, both to will and to do of His good pleasure anyway. It's not our job to make ourselves palatable and make the Word of God palatable to the world. Friend, that's not our job. Our job is to proclaim the truth. We're to shine His lights in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation. Friend, light is an irritant to those who are in darkness. I've used the example before of as a teenager having a bedroom down in the basement of our house with no windows in it. And, and when you would get into that room, I'm telling you, there were times you could not see your hand in front of your face. It was so dark. Man, did I sleep good in there. And one of the, one of the biggest irritations of my teenage years was my dad coming in early in the morning, opening the door and turning the bright light on to wake me up. I mean, it was painful. It hurt my eyes. It's like a shock, you know, like a bucket of cold water over your head. I mean... When you're in darkness and the light shines to you, it's not comfortable. But light is still important. 
Light is still necessary. Truth matters even if people don't want to hear it. Truth matters. So we need to let the, the salvation that's in us, we need to work, work it out of us with fear and trembling because there's judgment coming and because the world around us needs a witness. And then thirdly and quickly, because others have labored for our salvation. Friend, don't forget... The ultimate price that was paid for your salvation was the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ that he shed on the cross. But that was not the only price that was paid that you might be saved. That wasn't the only price. That was the price for your salvation. But friend, the price that was paid for you to receive the gospel, to receive the truth. I, I spoke a moment ago about those who laid down their lives so that we could hold the word of God in our hands today. Friend, you go back and read up on your Baptist history. And understand that our, our, our forefathers, they, they didn't start in the Protestant Reformation of the 1500s and 1600s. Our Baptist forefathers go all the way back to the time of Christ, and from the time of Christ until today, a price has been paid. Blood has been shed. The word of God that you hold in your hands has cost the lives of so many. We could talk about even who they are. Men like William Tyndale, who labored just for years to get us the word of God and ultimately died a martyr's death. And so many others, we hold in our hands a precious precious gift that was bought and paid for by the sacrifice of others. But then I want you to think even more recently than that. A number of you were saved right here in this church. Maybe not in this building, but in, at Mount Zion Baptist Church, you were saved. Some of us were saved other places. But think about the amount of sacrifice that's been made to get you the gospel. Consider with me, if you would, every parent, every Sunday school teacher, every pastor, every preacher, every Christian friend who has prayed for you, who has labored, that you might know the truth, that you might hold the truth. I stand here before you today by the grace of God. But I not only have God to thank, I also have many individuals to thank for the hours that they've spent in prayer for me. For the time that they spent teaching me. For those who work to lead me to Christ. And what does Paul say here in verse number 16 of Philippians 2? Holding forth the word of life that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. Friends, I am sitting here as a prisoner of the Lord. I'm literally in prison writing this epistle to you, and I am cheering you on because I know that one day when I stand in judgment, I want to be able to rejoice that the effort and the work and the time and the sacrifice that I put in and even the suffering that I'm facing was not in vain. But there is fruit there, is, there are people in heaven with me because of a price that I was willing to pay. Folks, others have labored for you. 
It might be your first time ever to sit in this church. But I want you to know that work has gone into you already. Prayer. Preaching and teaching. People have practiced and worked on preparing music that would speak to your heart and encourage you. Hopefully when you came in, someone smiled and shook your hand and said, welcome, we're glad to have you here. I'm just saying, a price has been paid to some degree or another that you might have the truth. And there is nothing more disheartening than to see people that you have labored, that you've prayed for, that you've invested in, that you've sacrificed for, to see them wash out and turn their back on the Lord. There's nothing more disheartening, friend. But on the other side of that coin, there's nothing more encouraging than to see them walking in truth. John said it in 3 John, verse number 4, there's, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. He's not talking about his earthly children. He's talking about those he's led to Christ. No greater joy. I heard this morning from a, a man that I led to Christ in Liberia three years ago, over three years ago. I can't tell you the encouragement to hear. He had been at church this morning. Of course, there are several hours ahead of us. He's been witnessing and telling others about Christ. Can't tell you how encouraging it is to hear him walking in truth. And friend, that ought to be motivation for us. Listen, if I, if I give up and I turn my back on God, the greatest tragedy is that I have walked away from the Lord who paid such a price for me. But I'm also turning my back on all those who've labored and prayed and taught and loved and sacrificed, that I might have the gospel, that I might be saved. So, two questions for you this morning. First of all, are you ready for Judgment Day? Has there ever been a time in your life where you realized that you were a sinner, that you were unable to save yourself, and that your only hope of eternal life was the Lord Jesus and you turned to Him. You placed your faith in Jesus and His shed blood alone to save you. Not, I need Jesus and good works. I, I'm going to try my best. But was there ever a time you laid down your own efforts and you said, Jesus, I need you. And you trusted Him to save your soul. If there has never been that time in your life, you are not ready for judgment, friend. And yet one day you will stand before him. We sang a moment ago, what can wash away my sin? And we answered that, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing. You need to be made ready for the judgment by receiving Christ as your Lord and Savior. And you can do that today. You can place your faith in Jesus today and be saved. But maybe you're here and you say, well, I've been saved. I know I'm saved. I know that I'm on my way to heaven. Good. But are you ready for judgment? Are you ready to stand before God? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Are you allowing God to work in you and through you as only he can?